what does it mean to coach? We, we all have this intuitive understanding, but that's been developed through various, you know, knowledges, right? And practices. We go to, we, we train as athletes, we go watch things on TV, we read magazines or articles. The way that we think about even coaching has all been socialized. You know, why do people think about these things so differently? What is it? Not just about them and their personalities. It's really, what is the knowledge? How were they socialized? How do they learn to coach? And why do they think that way? With with AI, with, you know, uh, the internet and with social media, people are like, oh, right. Like we have so much knowledge in our hands. Uh, do you? You're right. You, you don't really have necessarily quality control or trustworthy mechanisms in that knowledge. And you also have so much in today's age that you're totally overloaded in this stuff. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host, Dirk Friel. In each episode, we'll sit down with industry experts to discuss coaching methodologies, the latest research, and leading tools for endurance training. Visit trainingpeaks.com for more training and coaching resources. My guest today is Dr. Brian Garrity, founder and director of the Master of Arts in Sport Coaching at the University of Denver. He is an experienced strength and conditioning coach, keynote speaker, and author. This was a thought-provoking discussion of coaching outside of data analysis and traditional workout prescription. For example, how does culture and society affect our decision-making as coaches and shape our relationship with our athletes? I hope you enjoy today's discussion. Dr. Brian Garrity, thanks for joining me today on the CoachCast. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here with you guys and share some knowledge and see what else we can come up with. Absolutely. You know, I'm really looking forward to this one just because it's such a unique conversation that I'm looking forward to. You know, so much of what we talk about within endurance sports is related to science. Certainly you have a lot of science uh, that you that you teach um, and you're the founder and director of the Master of Arts in Sports um, Coaching at the University of Denver. Um, but a heavy emphasis in sociology and sociology and as that relates to coaching. And that's kind of an, an area that we don't really actually talk a whole lot about, but yet it's so fundamental and so important to athletic success and prospering relationships within coach athlete relationships and coach team relationships. So if you can bring us back to the basics of sociology and how that relates to coaching. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just having a conversation yesterday and today. If you think about an easy one, I think for, for y'all and thinking about this podcast is, you know, the history, let's just take the history of, you know, sports, the history of endurance training. Um, and you think about what people did, you know, a millennia ago or a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, 2010 now, like that sociology is, it's also history, but that's the sort of kind of historical social thinking like what what was it at the time that gave people that created their consciousness or created their knowledge of how they went about their coaching their training athletic performance theories of athletic performance uh nowadays we would say more just science right like and what what gives you your exercise physiology science or your biomechanical science uh what did people think then what do we think now why do we assume we're right now you know right like we always look back at how wrong we were or how much supposedly we've learned over, you know, decades and, and hundreds of years. So that just little bit to me is sociology. There's a really interesting area of, of study called um, STS and I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it. It's, it's science technology studies. Uh, that's right. Okay. Uh, which 
it's just an exemplary way to think about it, right? Like think about the historian in your science department, right? Somebody that nece- that doesn't necessarily focus on molecular biology or muscle hypertrophy or biomechanics of uh, an aerodynamics of running. Somebody that's like, let's understand all of this in its historical cultural context. That's a little bit more sociological as a start. So then how do you become the director founder of this unique program at the university of Denver? What's your background and how, how does this story develop to up till today? Well, I think to answer the question without being cute, right? The cute is, you know, is, is nobody wanted the job or they couldn't find anybody better, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm the poor, 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 uh, poor guy who, uh, like to fill out paperwork and, and curriculum and put together a market and create a whole new master's degree. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, but yeah, you, you touched on it earlier. I've got an undergraduate degree in, in phys ed and exercise science from John Carroll. And when I was at Carroll, right, I studied all of that fitness, athletic training, uh, physical education, and then eventually got an internship with the Cleveland um, guardians baseball team in 1999. And I was playing D3 football and, you know, my dad, listening to my dad for my dad, I'm sure he's, he's going to listen to the show. Uh, my dad, I listened to my father and he said, study something that you're, that you like and that you're interested in. And so I promptly switched my major from business to, to physics, exercise science. Because uh, after a year of economics and for all the students and others listening here, if you made it through a year of economics, your freshman year of college, uh, good for you. You're one of the few and, and a brave soul. <laughs> Um, so I switched over to, to something I enjoyed. I was big into, uh, powerlifting at the time too. I, I was, uh, I've always enjoyed lifting weights, um, and playing, I played D3 football at John Carroll for a couple of years. And then I got the internship and that was the end of that. Um, so I, as I, anyway, to, to, to speed it up, I was doing everything. I was doing phys ed, exercise science, athlete training. And then I ended up as a strength coach at the university of Tennessee, uh, for eight years, did all my graduate work there. And I really loved you know, physiology, mechanics, or biomechanics, nutrition. Uh, but I didn't ever see myself as a scientist like that. You know, I didn't want to be in a lab or, you know, all of that I enjoyed reading it, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't, I didn't identify uh, with doing that. I enjoy, identified with learning about it and appreciating it and making myself a better athlete and helping my friends and, and eventually the athletes I worked with. But it wasn't until I got into uh, sports psychology class um, qualitative research class, cultural studies classes. So philosophy, sociology of education, and really kind of getting into the mid two thousands, the whole sociology of sport coaching research was really taking off. And, uh, in the last 20 years or so that the, the research on coach education and social theory and psychological theory to really, uh, investigate how coaches learn, develop, grow and theorize, the emergence of really this kind of professionalization of coaching um, and our greater mm-hmm. attention on it. Right. So we've, we, so without going there, the detour, I'm going to, you can see, I'm excited to talk about that too. But uh, so I did that for eight years, did all my grad work there. And then I applied for a couple of professor jobs, got the jobs. And then university of Denver was starting a new program. And I had had a history in teaching online, teaching coaches. Um, so when I interviewed, right, it kind of made sense and, and fortunate to get the position and, uh, be here for nine years now, started that program, certificate programs in psychology of coaching, strength conditioning. And then this past year, uh, we started an ma- undergraduate major in uh, kinesiology and sports studies. And then three years ago, we started the minor in the same name. So we're just 
off and running and trying to kind of, you know, improve our local uh, community uh, throughout all sports with an emphasis on coaching. Yeah. Now, how would you explain differences between just taking sports psychology versus the sociology of sport? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you look at uh, sociology of sport, and I, I teach a sociology of sport class, and I think if you think about sociology of sport coaching, I'll take those two to start with. Yeah. The textbooks, the primary textbooks, right? Sociology of sport is going to think about sport as an in social institution, its history, its values, its norms. It's going to look at issues of, you know, so, social identity, so race, class, gender, sexuality, uh, economics, politics, those things as it applies kind of globally to sport, right? Across different sports, uh, different contexts. So pro sports, youth sports, college sports uh, in the U.S., internationally. Whereas, and so I, I'm thinking about like the textbooks there. Jake, I use Jay Coakley's textbook, who, you know, he's got the, probably the, the most popular textbook in sports. It's called Sports and Society. It, it's been around for 40 plus years. And he, he takes up issues like, let's say, violence and deviance in there. And we tend not to look at that in sociology of sport coaching as much. Um, so some of the topical interests overlap and some of them deviate or, or, or not deviate, but differ. Um, and then if you look in sociology of sport coaching, you know, in the two thousands, when that started really getting popular, there was, uh, folks named, uh, Robin Jones, Jim Dennison, Chris Cushion, and then they're kind of early doc students like Paul Potrack and now, uh, Lee Nelson, myself, others that use this similar social theory and sociological tools to investigate coaching, coaching performance, coaching education, how things like knowledge, power, Again, identity, now emotions, um, and just the way that we even conceptualize coaching, right? If I turn it back and you know, what does it mean to coach? We, we all have this intuitive understanding, yeah. but that's been developed through various, you know, knowledges, right? And practices. We go to, we, we train as athletes, we go watch things on TV, we read magazines or articles. The way that we think about even coaching has all been socialized, right? Or we reflect and we make it a little bit more conscious. So, Within right. sociology of sport versus sociology of sport coaching, we'll have different focus. Um, and then if we compare that to sports psychology or psychology of sport, you know, right? Um, sports psychology tends to look at a little bit more. The main focus for many years was uh, one, effective coaching. Uh, so there's early books in, you know, 50, 60 years ago on uh, the psychology of coaching and one book called Dealing with Problem Athletes. Um, and, and, it, and it reflected, right, as a sociological person, you're going, man, what, that's a unique name for a book, huh? And yeah. well, what, was it, what was it about that particular time period that would bring forth, and we might say birth, this kind of book on a topic like that? Like, it'd be weird to call something, or call a book like that nowadays. Uh, so things have changed, right? And in some ways, does that mean it's outdated? Does that mean we're better today? You know, that's, that's clearly debatable. Um, but that's what a more sociological, historical, cultural person would look like, uh, would look at. Uh, whereas traditional sports psychology looks at, let, let's just take um, mental skills, right? So enhancing right. focus, attention, arousal, dealing with anxiety and other issues of sport performance, the you know, more mental, behavioral and some emotional aspects of it. Uh, but trying to dial in, especially with athletes, uh, how do you perform at your peak level, optimal levels? Let's see if we can consistently get you there. 
um, and yeah. use a variety of tools like goal setting, um, again, diaphragmic breathing, mindfulness, relaxation to, to help increase performance. Whereas on the sociological side, uh, there's a really interesting book called Mick Mindfulness, right? So, and I'll, I'll do, I'll, answer, I'll go back to answer your question specifically about sociology of sport or sport coaching and uh, sports psychology. Sports psychology often uses mindfulness to enhance performance. Sociology will give it a little bit more critical look and be like, well, why are we even doing that? Why, why, why is sports so stressful or why is life so stressful and why are we emphasizing this? And there's a, a yeah. great book called Make Mindfulness that gets into how we have, you know, exploited and, and developed this whole way of knowing about mindfulness. And again, it's not to knock mindfulness itself, but it's to look at it in its historical context for all of its effects and, and why now this emphasis on it. Uh, and a little bit more kind of critical and not a functional, like we want to do this to enhance performance. It's not so, you know, we're doing this in a transactional functionalist sort of way. How'd I do right. that one? That was pretty good. I like that so far. <laughs> well, you mentioned anxiety, like within sports psychology and, you know, the coach has a large role to play and it goes beyond prescribing tomorrow's workout, you know, do times 20 minutes in zone three in tomorrow's run, like coaching. I mean, you, I, I've heard you mentioned the bio, bio, psycho, social model. And are they equal? It Talk about the, I mean, yeah. it, it seems like for each athlete, it can be different. Some athletes literally thrive on i just want the two times 20 minutes zone three give it to me i'll do it all day long other athletes will that'll bring anxiety yep um therefore then how does the coach even one recognize that anxiety to deal with it try and head it off the next time we have the same workout that's this more interaction between coach athlete as well as teammates and squad and and then it elevates even further and there's more rings to this right yeah. so so that sociology of how how can a coach first realize that and and then try and resolve some of these issues that are coming up and that's just kind of the iq factor you know the you know emotional iq of being self-aware yeah right so like sociologically right you you would bring it back into an, an emotional intelligence and iq as a, as a, as a psychological kind of concept, usually is interesting sociologically yeah. because right. Like sociologists wouldn't probably jump to that area, but psychology would. And it's interesting mm. to think about why is that right? Because emotional intelligence uh, has become, you know, very popularized in today's age too, with, with a few key in the key textbooks, um, and a complementing, uh, complementing behavioral and cognitive behavioral sort of ways of knowing. Um, so that we're appreciating emotions, but emotions specifically from a spurt and framework is another sociological observation. Um, yeah. you really touched on a lot of different things. So part to, to, to hit on one thing that stood out to me too, there is, you know, I, I think it depends on the problem, you know, as a coach, what is the, maybe the key problem that you're dealing with and, and how we frame a problem is one of the things that we teach and we talk about in our program too. Mm -hmm. So is the problem biological, psychological, or social, right? And so if we think about maybe a few easy things across those different areas of how we might typically look at it, 
is the problem physiology, right? Is it go out and run at this heart rate or this zone or this intensity, um, you know, for this many minutes at this many pace or miles, whatever it might be. You can think about that as, as a basic physiological problem. We, we would years ago try to understand, you know, aerobic, anaerobic pathways and mechanisms, right? And very important. And, and also mm-hmm. now we look at it as a relatively basic thing uh, to understand. Made a lot of great advances in that area. Uh, as a strength coach as yep. well and as a power lifter, you know, it would be contraindicated for me to go out and run miles upon miles. But if I was working with more of an endurance athlete, I would want to uh, know and appreciate that, that other uh, scientific knowledge as well. So, right, if the problem is muscle mass, strength, endurance, we want to have the right tool for it. Uh, if the problem is anxiety and, um, you know, people's arousal, they're getting too high, they're getting too low, uh, loss of motivation. Um, right? The, the I think about some sports where you uh, there are practice, pra- they practice great, but then they transfer to the game is not so good, right? You get the uh-huh. in, in in football. You know, I just got done coaching my son's youth football team. We would say you're a scout team all American, and then you get in the game and you're a dud, right? Um, <laughs> same thing, right? Uh, so that's maybe more psychological, or it could be a social, right? If I think about endurance sports. You know, how do we diversify endurance sports or how do we get more people involved, more people involved, make them feel included? You alluded to earlier team dynamics, right? If you've got a team problem where the team is arguing, heavy in conflict, uh, saying things that are mean spirited to each other, they're, you know, they're doing things to hamper inclusion and access and, and performance. You know, we want to deal with that, right? So, depending on what we think is the key problem uh, is going to maybe a direct our tools that we have in our tool belt to address that too. So having the range of things to think about uh, can help us think about uh, coaching differently in athlete training programs. And like you said too, I really like the intersection of uh, biopsychosocial uh, as a phys ed major, how I thought about practice plans and training plan- plans was very different than the football coach or the track coach, uh, the cross country coach, the youth coach. So, you know, why do people think about these things so differently? What is it? Not just about them and their personalities. It's really, what is the knowledge? How were they socialized? How do they learn to coach and why do they think that way? Um, and appreciating yeah. that probably nobody's ever, you know, right, fully right or fully wrong. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but making sense of that is one of the kind of things that we really try to emphasize in getting folks to be, uh, reflective about not only their themselves and their emotional intelligence, like you said, but also all of the forces that went into creating their biographies and the the ecosystem around them too. So that's a little bit. Yeah. You know, does that make sense too? Does that kind of speak to the difference between maybe the mindset that we often talk about versus situating that mind in society? Yeah, exactly. The lens that you see through. I think an athlete. An athlete's job is just simply look through their own lens, right? They're not trying to think about others, but a coach working with a squad, a team, an individual needs to think in terms of the lens and what the athlete brings to the table and how they view the situation. But I kind of take that back. An athlete should be thinking through the eyes of others as well, especially if it's a team situation. And you might have a triathlon squad training together triathlon is not inherently a team sport, but you right. may, right. may train as a squad 
And if you as an athlete are always somehow interacting with another athlete and, and it somehow creates negativity within the group that brings the entire group down. Right. So I guess having that coach be realize that, see it through the different lens of somebody else and seeing the different perspective, um, is so, so valuable. Um, and again, in many ways, it's much more important than actually today's workout. Yeah. I mean, right. I, I, I've read some grants, you know, I, I do some uh, work with the national strength conditioning association foundation and I read grant proposals where they argue, okay, well, most of the research looks at 30 seconds. For example, most of the research looks at 30 seconds. We're going to look at 25 seconds and you go, all right, you know, it's, it's, it's a legitimate, legitimate physiological question, but is it the most interesting or is it going to have a lot of practical significance compared to, I should write it. That's not the problem. The problem as a coach isn't, isn't 25 or 26 seconds. The, the problem as a, right. as a strength coach wasn't, should we do five reps or six reps? It, it, it's minute. It's not a significant thing. Let's, let's instead focus on something bigger, right? Let's focus on something that maybe has a bigger impact, you know, and, and I'm just putting together and this, yeah. I knew this was going to happen with today's chat too, right? Cause um, just generating ideas. And if I can think about research in this area, but you know, the, the social dynamics of also drafting in running or, or cycling in those sports too, where you have a team of people helping you set a pace or right. You're falling behind uh -huh. Um, and how you transition that. So I might think of, I would, I think about it being more in the sprint area as the teamwork and the communication involved in handing off a baton and, and, a, and, a, and a relay. Mm -hmm. But I can think about it in, uh, you know, longer distance sports too. Um, and, and how you get people to function on a team together and then support each other. Yeah. And what a difference that makes for people's motive, especially recreationally right. too, you know, and for masters athletes. You know, to be in a supportive environment where it's fun, it's engaging, it's a social activity, it's also can be competitive. Um, I mean, arguably, that's a hell of a lot more important than, you know, 100 yards or 10 seconds or one rest here and there, you know, so. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So in your experience, what 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 sports may be leading the way when it comes to accreditation? You know, we have oh, yeah. USA Triathlon, USA Cycling, Cycling Australia, British Cycling, et cetera. And majority of coaches do go out and get accredited. Um, but then there isn't a whole lot of this discussed around the sociology, the biopsychosocial kind of models. Yeah. Um, it's really, you know, going to be 90%, you know, a heart rate pace based type science focused biology. Um, what kind of sports do you see leading the way or where do you see areas of opportunity as well? Yeah, I, I think the... The opportunity is to continue to advance coaching into something that is a baseline for everybody, but also more robust, more robust. I think my email, I'm sorry, I had to turn it off. Um, yeah. Sorry, my email dinged and I thought I couldn't, I got confused there for a sec. Um, yeah. So to go back to the point, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to have a baseline for coaching education that is a little bit more comprehensive than it currently is. And it includes very important things like, you know, safe sport and abuse prevention and reduction. Uh, it includes basic sports psychology for mental skills uh, and, and referral for more clinical things, being observant of issues like eating disorder, self-harm, violence, um, substance use and abuse, uh, and, a, and a host of other things. So it'd be really great if coaches had more training on all of that, right? And we're aware of their own role and the and how training and sport contributes to those issues. 
uh, as well as how they can make referrals to uh, good medical professionals and, and therapists. Uh, and also socially, we see we do see a movement. I was on a, a program with USA Lacrosse, was doing some good work on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, the NSCA has a, has a special interest group doing it, but really integrating that and then leaning upon experts in uh, sociology and, and cultural sports psychology, diversity that can do that better too. You know, I've, it, it goes every which way you've seen, I've seen um, natural scientists, you know, and physiologists oriented people trying to do diversity training and, you know, right. I wouldn't want to teach a doctoral level, class in exercise physiology. You know, I'm, I'm good. I'm not that good. Right? The same thing. I, you, there's a lot of folks out there and there's a lot of good research. There are ways that we can uh, make sport more inclusive and, and adapt it to a variety mm -hmm. of, of bodies and abilities. Um, yeah. You know, and those are often uh, social factors are often the, the leading cause or contributing uh, factor of why people engage or don't engage in certain sports too. So I think there's a tremendous yeah. area for growth to, to go in that direction. Um, you know, I think, like you said, USOC, USOPC, and a lot of the organizations uh, that are either at that uh, umbrella or, or similar uh, or trying to apply for USOPC uh, status as an as a Olympic sport, you know, they do a lot of good work, but they also need, I think, some independent oversight too. You know, time and time again, we see uh -huh. gaps in their education and regulation Um you know, I, I study a, a bit on, on abuse in sport. And so when you can look at USA Gymnastics and swimming and, and this is in, in football and, and those are common areas where you see pretty high prevalence. Um, you know, there's reasons why that stuff happens and nobody's doing really a great job of preventing uh, that. Um, and we don't have independent accountability in those areas. So there are a lot of groups that do right. good coach education. Uh, but like you said too, right, it's, it's often – technical and tactical, uh, physiological, biomechanical, right. some nutrition, maybe a bit now on um, heat-related illnesses and conditions, uh, cold as well. And you see that, right, in, in endurance or ultra events. Um, but, you know, the whole psychosocial piece is, is usually marginalized or left behind. And advocates like myself, too, kind of be like, hey, guys, you know, let's let's make this a little bit more inclusive. I know you're trying to get people out there and not create more yeah. barriers, but also by not addressing it, you're by default reproducing the same system that has barriers too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you wrote once, and I have it here, it's unethical and shameful that we focus more on muscles and movement than our humanity. Did I write that? That sounds good. It's in one of your blog posts. I'll, I got a few more quotes here from you. Did I say that? Where did I say that? What? But yeah, that humanity aspect. And when I think about that quote, unfortunately, in our space of endurance sports, it's kind of like NFTs right now, but there's this big bubble of discussion around AI. Yeah. And we talk yeah. about there's so much discussion around AI and, and it's going to take over the world. And the more I think about AI, the less, the more I think it's getting away farther and farther away from humanity. And and actually building the best athlete possible. Right. When, when people, when you're around AI and yeah, coaching. Yeah, right. I, I thought about that, right? It's, it's, it's certainly a growing thing, right? I want to punch in, and I haven't done it yet, but punch into AI, like design a training program for, you know, a beginner, right. a novice yeah. runner or a weightlifter. Like if it's just going to, you know, sc scroll through, you know, databases and other gray material 
and then spit out a formula. And there's apps that do that too. There's apps that have been built out that are just program and copy and paste. And, and it'll tell you too, right? In, in sport and in coaching and teaching, it's right. The difference maker isn't the physiology or the biomechanics. Mm. After you've kind of get a, 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 a sufficient level, um, it's really relationships, right. it's connection, it's motivation, it's it's uh, the, the environment that wants to keep you in there and keep you active. Uh, and when you lose that, is yeah. when you're going to start to lose people and have lower uh, outcomes too. Um, yeah, so yeah it's, certainly it's, it's believing really in the human area. Yeah, I mean that really is a difference maker. Is you know the better you get, the more uh, that human interaction actually plays a bigger and bigger role. Um, and you also mentioned, I have another quote of yours here. Coaching is always an ethical act. A brief interaction or comment in the coach-athlete relationship can trigger profound consequences. You know, I think like yeah. almost every one of us can somehow think about in our history interaction with a coach, both the very hopefully positive, but also there's probably a very negative interaction somewhere along the way with a coach that lasts with you your entire lifetime. Yep. So being aware of that as a coach and how you can have an absolute impact, positive and negative, you know, for an entire lifetime. Well, that's it. I mean, if, if we combine the social sciences right on emotions too, right? If the emotions trigger lifelong memories. And so what you just said right. too, right? I thought about at least four different incidents from being an athlete to a coach <laughs> where it was good and bad. Uh, that were all highly emotionally charged incidents. And it could be from yeah. when my high school coach um, got the team to write a condolence card when my mom died going into high school. Uh, it could be, mm. um, you know, a college coach berating me and, and others uh, for no good reason, really. Um, you know, and often just hearing themselves yell to hear them and, and you know, not treating uh, the athlete who was the son of a donor equally when they were all, when everybody's doing the same sort of thing. Um, it could be me coaching several years ago, you know, and myself raising my voice and yelling uh, at a high school athlete uh, and apologizing to him afterwards. Uh, so it, mm -hmm. aspects like that, right? Like your emotional intelligence and your knowledge of emotion, because that's going to stick with somebody over uh, possibly an entire lifetime. And there's certainly people, uh, and we often talk about, right, there's sport for performance and there's sport for participation, recreation, leisure, you know, where yep. performance is not the be all end all, right? And, and in mm -hmm. today's age, that's an interesting social thing, right? That today's age is is really competitive, right? That, that it's not just good enough to have a sound mind and a sound body like physical education people, but you have to be the best. And if you're not the best, don't even bother. Right. And we're not even encouraging lifelong participation in physical activity, physical enjoyment and movement right. over a lifespan. We don't emphasize adult uh, fitness um, after they get out of college or professional level. Right? We've got such a narrow focus on that. Um, and so people critique it. But again, the forces that be that profit off of it and uh, tell us to be at the highest level are very, very strong. Uh, so the yeah. point was, there's a lot of folks that you know get out of sport. And I don't like to use the word quit either because they purposefully leave. Like, right, we label them as quitters and that, that has a certain connotation and meaning to it. But a lot of people leave because sport isn't fun. It's not enjoyable. It's not good. It doesn't help them. It doesn't yeah. build character and other good outcomes. So they get out of it. And then years later, 
you know, they're trying to get fit and they're trying to be active. And so they have to go back and deal with the emotional baggage that they had, you know, at a time when it wasn't a very good experience. Yeah. I don't like that mentality of early specialization and that's part that's social sociology right there. Like parents need to get their kids eight, you know, eight, whatever it is, eight, eight year old boy into baseball and pitching and they got to make it, you know, to big leagues. Um, but then have you read the book range and you know, uh, the value, yeah. the value of having a broad range of experience in different sports yeah. later on actually makes you a better, deeper, you know, athlete and you can deal with different situations in, in unique ways instead of yeah. the one way. Right. Um, so that, and, and you, you mentioned people quitting and, you know, yeah, it's like you, you specialize at age 10 in swimming and you quit at age 12 and you give up all sports where it would have yeah. been better to experience five different sports. And then later on, you might find the perfect one, which is lacrosse, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. that's sociology right there that I think is a negative with, especially in the American sports right now, that specialization too early. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's a variety of approaches, and I'll give credit to the there's there are physical scientists and psychologists that study growth and maturation, or these the over specialization or sports sampling strategies we call it too. Yeah, right. Should should you sample early? Sample how much? Um, but even even just the focus on that whole thing, right? Like that's where like Jay Coakley too in sociology of sport. You know, I've got a we did an interview with Jay, and, and I know I've known Jay now for years too where in a span of about four minutes, he explained, you know, 40, 50 years worth of history in sociology in, in four minutes. So he's like, well, when I was a kid, it was this focus. Then my daughter, it was this focus. And now today's age is this focus. And you're like, right. man, like look at the, about every 15 years, right? And in today's age, we're even, yeah, we want to build like in his example too, right? Where they, like you alluded to was he, he talked about Tiger Woods, right? After Tiger uh, right. training, training a tiger or whatever the book was called, you know, where it's like, but written by Tiger's dad, that's like, this is how you raised a Tiger Woods. And mm -hmm. so everybody's right, like, oh, cool. All right. I can now raise a Tiger Woods. Like we can manufacture that. We can design that. And that's in today's sort of scientific technology profitability sort of focus. Whereas, you know, 40 years ago, that was not the focus. Yeah. You know, and my, my dad now yeah. is, he'll be, he's 84. And, you know, when, when I take him to watch my kids sporting events and look at the fields and how much they travel and play for various things, you know, him and I would debate it and he, he, he would kind of understand it, but not really appreciate it. And then when we kind of did some of these things in person, he's like, all right, now I see what you're talking about, you know, because the level of, we're not playing games or playing sport anymore. They're not in the street. He grew up in the, in the Bronx in New York playing sport, you know, stickball in the streets. You go out now, mm -hmm. they're not doing that, you know? So yeah. have we really gotten better in some things? All right. I mean, our, our race times are down, you know, by some seconds and minutes in some areas, but overall, are we actually more healthy? Are we more enjoying ourselves? Are we benefiting from problem solving and yeah. creative play? You know, probably not. Uh, we got more overuse yeah. injuries. You got more shoulder injuries, elbow injuries in baseball. Those things are rampant. So that's what yeah. sociology does. It Sorry. makes things not fun anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, it's giving perspective is definitely, you know, the value of it. Yeah. So, you know, we think about the art of coaching or the yeah, science yeah. of coaching, the art yeah. and science of coaching, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and 
you know, what, what, what amount is each, you know, the art and science of coaching. So I, I give you an example. There's, this was, I think Robin Jones had wrote about this years ago too. Now, you know, 15 or whatever years ago, uh, probably longer than that, 20 now, when you say the art of coaching, what are we talking about? What are we really talking yeah. about? Like you're not painting, you're not sculpting. You're not like doing those sorts of things like an artist. You're not creating music in, in that. So what are you really talking about? What we're talking about, he argued in this paper, right? Is the social complexities and the general messiness of coaching, right? Like, like the milieu, right. there's a great word, the milieu in, in sociology. Like what is the milieu? It's this <laughs> weird space that we can't really describe that's kind of there, right? Energy, emotions, the physical corporal things of things, your subjective embodiment, your interpretation of what things mean. That is the sort of messiness and multifactorial and the multiple connections that you're constantly making that that tends to be more, I think, sociological. Um, so art, art is nothing more than in this instance, what we, in most cases, what we really mean by it is it's complex, dynamic, it changes, it's multifactorial. Yeah. It's not something <laughs> that is like creative and unknown and, and mysterious and mystical, right? Like sometimes we use that word art when we're not sure about things. Well, guess what? You've never been sure about anything, you know, or you can joke except for death and taxes. Yeah. Even, even the hardcore physical scientists <laughs> aren't sure about everything. It doesn't make sense. None of the equations give you a hundred percent of anything. So what is this illusion that we have right. anyway, that science is so objective and guaranteed and predictable and generalizable that we've never had, but we keep saying that crap, you know, and then we throw in a little bit of art to yeah. make the psychosocial aspect, you know, a little bit murky. You know, whereas people then like eventually are like, yeah, yeah, let, let's let's break that down a little bit more and try to get a little bit more light for it um, and stop using that language that maybe or, or be more mindful of the language when we really or right when you when you have better language. And that's what got you know, when you, when you talk to other folks that get into this, they're like, wow, when I got into this stuff, this is giving me the language and the, and the theoretical concepts and the research to say the things that I've been thinking, but I couldn't articulate. I've heard a lot of folks like me yeah. that when they get, you know, same thing, like I, I liked physiology, biomechanics, nutrition, motor learning, but it wasn't until I got into this where I was like, this is what I want to talk about. Yeah. I love the word milieu, you know, that messiness in the middle. Um, you know, and I think of, when I think of the art of coaching, I think about, well, there's no right or wrong answer. It's like anything where there's not a right or wrong answer, right. <laughs> becomes the yeah. art of coaching. It's the, it's the debate back and forth between coach and athlete or the coach deciding do this, not that. Yeah. And, and I, I got to uh, ground myself too, because I don't believe in what I might call naive relativism. Like anything goes. So I won't, I won't agree that anything goes um, because right. I can go back to basic physiological systems and go, okay, well, Right. And I can, I can make up crazy stuff. Well, okay. Well, if, no, if there's no, if there's no right answer, there's no one way to do things, then, you know, okay, run backwards this time down the hill and see how that works for you. You know, you could, you could come up with some sort of thought experiment <laughs> to kind of be silly, but also be like, okay, there's well, a range. Yeah. Right. I see your point. Right. The same thing for weightlifters. Right. Are we ever going to get to a point where we're like, cool, go out and run for two mile, two hours straight, because that's really going to help you with your performance. Well, no, that's a bit silly. But again, you know, because it's such an extreme. So we can have some, you know, gen again, right. this is what that science is. This is why I like the fields of science and sociology and sociology of science is an area to study because you can pin down into 
how does science, how does knowledge get created? And you can have some statistical generalizations, but they tend to be very big and broad. Aerobic, anaerobic training and the continuum in there. But again, answering the question of exactly though, how many miles, how much time, how much rest, there's even so many different ways to program that or think about that too. You know, there's at least three, four different really major models and ways of doing that. Um, perceived effort, yeah. heart rate, uh, you know, um, physiological, biological Pace, markers. Right. Yeah, you, you can use a variety of tools. So even even the best, and I, and I just saw this uh, this past year or two on on social media. Even the best sports scientists are trying to figure things out. They don't. There's no magical knowledge or like secret that they have like it's everybody's got the same databases nowadays you can all read the same stuff and everybody's trying to go out there and, and play and manipulate things to do the best they can um you know i, I love yeah uh, I, I i'm gonna digress into a, a another area but you know I'm, I'm thinking of how we have a fascination with certain cultures or contexts too and we um love to attribute you know some sort of mystical uh, magical, you know, yeah. food in, or, or, or something is in the water that makes a particular group of people or a context, you know, superpowers. And you're like, nah, it ain't that either, I, you know? Yeah. 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 It, you know, you mentioned theory, there's a the theory of science, you know, one concept builds on another and leads to another and we rest, prove it out yeah. every step along the way. Is there the theory of sociology? Does one, does one building block, build upon another upon another like are there even a relation relationships you can automatically make like is there a yeah. theory of sociology like a like a grand narrative we might call it like a like a theory that explains all the theories or a theory that kind of pieces well i mean we, we build a base around science yeah. and we build up from there from the basics and it, yeah. just one building block on another and you prove it out every step of the way yeah um just, you know, sociology, it, you know, it just doesn't. It, well, so, okay. So like some sort of, we, right. we, yeah, we would typically say, so yeah, some sort of, you know, functionalist or grand narrative perspective that kind of explains things the best or the most or with great parsimony in, in, in simplistic form, right? Um, that, that's more of a psychological uh, concept that, that's popularized here. Like the simplest explanation works and you're like, well, what if it's not simple? But anyway, um, even the use of science to give you a base. So if I think about philosophy of science, you know, and, and again, how that intersects with social, social theory, that there are leading or very dominant or popular theories of the day. Um, the theories, and this is, I'm weak in uh, endurance sports, but, you know, the idea that there's a central governor theory, right? That, that's pretty popular mm, yeah. in endurance sports. Um, but also people mm -hmm. have critiqued that and said, well, wait a minute, that only explains so much too. And let's look at the mental aspects or psychological aspects of performance. And we have to account for that somehow too. Um, and so is it really this magical central governor or is it a combination with uh, psychology and other factors too? So that would be a, a way that we might think about a, a dominant paradigm or a dominant theory that explains something. And we're all kind of operating along that line until, and, and it's progressive. We continue to build upon that and build upon that in slow and incremental ways with additional research. We very carefully understand causal mechanisms better. And we, we keep building to that theory until one day we say this theory is wrong. And then we critique that theory 
And people say, no, no, you can't do that. And then they say, hmm, maybe you can do that. Oh, I see your new evidence is better. Now I'm going to believe this new theory, you know, and the cycle mm -hmm. repeats. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there are still folks or still areas where that exists. Um, and then there's, you know, that, that sort of theorizing or philosophizing maybe is good for um, a particular phenomenon, trying to understand something like uh, performance and running. But if you, if you come across a paradigm change and something else like, so AI could totally upend that, or um, that's only one way of thinking for a particular tool or a particular understanding. If you want to get more kids involved in sport or solve a different problem, that way of thinking is not necessarily going to help you about it with, with it too. They, there is no grand yeah. theory kind of in the other, uh, some other domains. So, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Stop. I'm kind of getting, you know, rambling a little bit, but it, it makes me think of paradigm and paradigm shifting kind of talk too. Yeah. Well, in the world we live in today, we just mentioned AI and consequences of that, where that might fit in and how that affects, I guess, coach athlete relationships um, and, and creating successful athletes, yes or no. But another big thing in our world today is social media. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, that affects athletes, that affects coaches. It's a, you know, hey, coach why are we doing this today? I see the other team across town is doing this. Yeah. You know, why aren't we doing that? You know, and, and this FOMO fear of missing out and just that builds anxiety and how do I compare and I'm not good enough and, Oh, I'm horrible. You know, and all we're doing is practicing, you know, that has there, have you seen come across research around social media effects within and, and sociology and up, oh, yeah. um, you know, within athletics. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's good bit of research on social media, uh, all the things that you just said, as well as the, the other one, like presentation of self and the social media front that people put out there, which is, you know, to right. be con often to be consumed for fame, fortune, and attention, uh, you know, not because it's truthful. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and there's so much the combination yeah. now with it, with AI, that people can put things out there and totally manufacture it. Or now you've got just right, the AI the together. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, it goes hand in hand. And so uh, there's <laughs> there's other research, too, that looks at like. And I don't know it as well. I think it's fascinating, but like uh, simulacra, like mimicry in a way. And, and you're trying to mimic things that you see and create a replica of things. And then there's just totally fantastical right. sorts of things too that are so staged but they look real but they're not real at all you know you might think about somebody doing some sort of you know ultra event or claiming to do something that's so extreme or so uh, grueling that everybody yeah. that's on the inside is kind of like eh, i don't know about this this seems a little bit uh, fabricated here you know uh, or they're like wow yeah we should totally do that too um so <laughs> Yeah, that's just another thing to think about, along with, you know, the people with, with AI, with, you know, the Internet and with social media, people are like, oh, right. Like we have so much knowledge in our hands. Uh, do you? You're right. You, you don't really have necessarily quality control or trustworthy mechanisms in that knowledge. And you also have so much in today's age that you're totally overloaded in this stuff. Like, how do you decide? Yeah. You know, even if you're in sports science, how do you decide what sports science is the best? Right. It's like totally yeah. taken for granted. We just assume that more science is better science. Well, 
how do you still make your decision making? Like, like I'm talking about your humanity. You're like the end of the day, right? And, and I and I and I and I have the the purest scientists in mind sometimes that like to think that the, there is no human interpretation in their science, which for me mm -hmm. and for other folks too, they're kind of like, hey, well, I thought we ended this debate a while ago. Like, there's obviously some sort of human inter interaction or in interpretation going on, because if you right. queried a room full of scientists. They might agree on some things, but they must also wildly disagree on things. And you take something like program design and coaching, they could they could vary considerably across all of that. But if they're all yeah. supposedly, you know, scientists, isn't the same knowledge informing everything they do? Of course not. You know, but yeah, who wants to talk yeah. about that, especially if that means your science and how we have to incorporate other aspects of humanity into this equation? How do they do that? And they... You know, that's where you've got to come together. You've got to discuss these things and bring it together. But, you know, universities and programs and people also aren't produced like that. They pr we're producing things in silos. So yeah. that's how we see yeah. things in our, in a, in a unique box. So, yeah, absolutely. We bring our own unique lens and perspective to everything. Um, so one in psychology, yeah, let me give you one example, right? And, and this is how we talk. Well, in the program, you, you mentioned program real quick, but, we might criticize psychology yeah. or, or not psychology, but the limitation of using the word bias versus a social frame, right? Bias indicates that people have some sort of natural disposition to uh, think or do something one way and not see it another way. Whereas if you think about it as a, as a more of a social thing, it looks not just to the individual, but to the context and the culture and the history of the individual within that, again, time, that, that society. So yeah. bias and, and social framings are different kind of ways of looking at things. So like in our program, right, we, we know that students are going to think about these things in certain ways. And we'll talk about bias and framing and kind of be like, hey, you see how this has got us thinking one way? So does this. But let's criticize yeah. it all and try to be more aware and be more creative in our thinking. So one of the ways that um, we, I came up with this here years ago, too, was uh, construct, critique and create as a three C right. sort of way of thinking about how knowledge in ourselves are created, that we are constructed, like literally, like we are constructed people at a particular time and people in a hundred years from now are going to be different. That, that seems a rather obvious sort of claim, but let's think about how we're constructed. Let's critique that. And then let's think about, right. We're critiquing its limitations. We're critiquing it to be more aware so we can regulate better. And then so we can create our own philosophy, our own way of living, our own ethical uh, standards in practice with others. Uh, so those things tie into each other as a, as a, a use of alliteration to, to make it kind of sticky, right? So we can, we can yeah. kind of uh, keep it in mind. Yeah. Construct, critique huh. and create. Nice. I like that. Um, and tell me about the program. What kind of coaches sign up for your program the, this masters of arts sport coaching coaches um, who want to win all the time and be the best and that's it if you want to win yeah. and be the best you come to us <laughs> uh, after, after and your team's an athlete our team are the best we win our all of our coaches and graduates are 100 percent uh winners they've won all the competitions <laughs> that they've ever been um we crush everybody so and we, we make the most money too um so we get a good range. We get a range of, um, you see a couple of clusters. We see clusters at the, you know, fresh out of college, undergrad, uh, want to continue into coaching. And then they've got a degree either in 
know, kinesiology, exercise, science, something like that. And they're, they're, they're logically continuing on to build on that. We, we've got another group that are the non-sport related degree people, the business people, the political science people, communication studies people that are like, hey, I don't want to go huh. sell insurance or, you know, or, or, you know, do sales. Uh, I want to go into something that I enjoy like sports. So they find our degree. Uh, we've also got the, huh. you know, the older, more mature kind of coaching crowd with several years of experience that might be between 35 and 45 that are like, right. I want to, I want to grow my coaching and I want to get better at it. So I'm going to do uh, this degree and it's going to give me more, a deeper knowledge and, and, and uh, cultural credibility to work my way up the food chain and, and have greater career mobility too within my organization, as well as moving around wow. to different organizations and becoming more of an administrator, leader, manager, head coach, athletic director, um, coach wow. educator as well. That's awesome. And is it all virtual online in person? So What's the, the makeup or options? Yeah, the, 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 and this again, in today's age, right? We're all using technology in different ways. And so what, I see this. So for us, we are asynchronous, fully, fully online, which means uh, it's not self-paced. It's not a, you know, you just click through stuff and move your way along. Okay. Uh, and I'm familiar with those programs. I've done a lot of those in coaching. A lot of organizations do, and this is in our, in our book, we wrote a book right on coach education. And so there are organizations that do the self-paced uh, like on-demand education. And you just click through things. Maybe mm -hmm. there's some sort of minor interaction or engagement. There's usually no assignments or anything like that. You just click, maybe there's a lightweight quiz or something like that. And you can take it a million times. Uh, our program is asynchronous online. So this, we, we follow the DU University of Denver schedule. Every course is 10 weeks long. Uh, courses are designed based on the description and the goals of the class. If, uh, and each class has a signature pedagogical assignment. And so we think about, we ask ourselves all the time, what do coaches need to know and do? What are the attitude and the values that they should have when they graduate from our program? And so we think about our curriculum then as a way of achieving that end. And so we design classes uh, with a description, with goals, and we create assessments so that way we can track, just like in coaching, did we kind of achieve some of those goals and how do we get there? Uh, and then from there, we build out what we call universal design for learning too. So we build out a variety of ways. Could be lecture, could be videos, could be external videos. Uh, we do custom uh, animations as well as other multimodal instructional strategies to help people develop uh, deep learning. And, and we check for understanding versus with, with different ways. So all that to say 10 weeks, asynchronous, they follow a path. They're constantly engaged with the instructor. They're getting feedback. We're working through problems. They're discussing things with others. They're submitting things that are real world applications. They're asking questions about their themselves and the coaching context that they're working in or where they might want to work in. And then they're building real kind of real world tools and problem solving strategies. You know, again, I, I believe we believe in the interaction of theory and practice. We call it praxis, P-A-P-R-A-X-I-S, praxis. Right. They go together. It's not just, you know, bizarro ivory tower nonsense. Right. I'm, I'm familiar with that. But it's also not just here's the plan. Do these things. It's not that basic. It's not dumbed down. Right. So it's a combination of those right, things right. 
to challenge and support them to become what we call scholar coaches. We want them to be great doers and great thinkers. And and emotionally, as we're talking about emotions, right? Be emotionally attuned and uh, have great values to do it the right way. And they don't have to be currently coaching, right? You don't. You mentioned some folks aren't coaching at all right now. Most of them are. It's on a rare occasion that somebody's not coaching. Now we do have a, a reflective practice course that does require them to be engaged in coaching or administrative responsibilities. Okay. And then. When they, when they work their way now through this applied uh, research project, they have to be working as a coach or with a community partner to do real-world evidence strategic change, if, if, I, if I make it simpler. without yep. it's, it's, called, it's based on a framework called action research. So they have to do real things in the real world, but it's not just do whatever you please. It's think like a scholar coach and make real-world changes and improvements. Um, so you've got to do that. You can't just, we, you can't just think about it. You know, it's not a thought experiment yeah. that you can do, you know, <laughs> in a philosophical sort of way. Yeah. We obviously had all the hockey coaches at DU through the program because uh, <laughs> multi-time national champion hockey team. So <laughs> they, 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 you know, it's funny here as well as elsewhere. I'd say if you talk to, you know, a variety, if you survey a variety of coach educators, the coaches that are already at the, you know, the, the high performing level or already at that kind of level, they're generally so busy and, you know, if they really attribute their success to what they're already doing, they're not going to go back to school too formally. Now, some of them do, <laughs> um, but you know, if you're like Bill Belichick, now maybe Bill Belichick will get some time off and go back to school. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. But you know, if, if you're already at that level, right, you're not probably doing it. It's, it's as you're working your way up, you know, to, to, to be able to juggle, you know, a master's degree while working at that level is pretty rare. Um, yeah, you know they've, they've well really they did it before they became national champions. So oftentimes, know. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, yeah, I mean, well, here I tell you, I'll take I don't know Coach Carl as well as like you know Bill Tierney, the old lacrosse coach that just retired here, but you know, like me, he's got a phys ed degree from uh, New York. I'm, I'm from Cleveland, but he's got a physical education undergraduate degree. Um, like for me, yeah. and I've coached with people with different degrees, and we all value we all have different strengths and weaknesses, but having a degree and knowledge this specific to something that you do. Yeah. It makes a difference. Um, you know, for the better yeah. on average. Um, it seems like a wild claim that I even kind of hesitate to make, but you know, in today's age, right. Would you want your, and on average, would you want your doctor not going to school or having some sort of qualification? You know, we, we'd say no, right. It's too haphazard. You know, same thing. I, I would not want Joe Schmo off the street to design my program. Uh, and yeah, I mean, they, they can think very creatively because they haven't had the same socialization experiences, but uh, with a high quality education, you learn to think you don't learn just to do and replicate and be a, an automaton or a robot right. or what we call a technical technician or a technocrat. You're not just, you know, you're not just AI. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> here, here. Uh, hey, are you on Twitter, Instagram? How can people find yeah. you, follow you? It's all just, you know, on all of them, it's just uh, either my name or just at Dr. Garrity. So D-R-G-E-A-R-I-T-Y. Um, you know, awesome. every now and then I'll post some, I'll post some humor. I'll post some barbecue, some wine, and, and some other things about coaching <laughs> too, occasionally. So, yeah. just Nice like, telling I, all those strengths. Go ahead. I, I just saw a defensive line guy um, on, on Instagram and I commented, I, I know, you know, I, I don't lurk too much or comment too much just because, 
you know, you get busy and you don't want to get into, you know, Twitter debates with people and that, but he was commenting about back squatting for defense alignment. And I was like, well, let's, let's think about this here. Cause there were some questions in the logic uh, about back squatting for defense alignment in this case hurts your back and yep. it makes you stiff and they don't have to do it. And I'm like, well, let's think about this, right? Your causal mechanisms were a little bit confusing there. Um, and really what's your problem? So uh, I made a comment on that one. There's other things that uh, this individual posts all the time. That's really good um, with techniques and drills and skills. Great. Um, so, Hey, anyway, just I, tell the I, lineman I, to go run uh, three hours and it'll make them better. Well, right. What do you think about endurance? That's what they used to do at baseball in particular, last, you know, back in the day, right? Baseball is to go run distance. And you're like, nowadays we're like, no, go run sprints. It's a totally anaerobic activity. Um, but yeah, you know, running, right? Just like the cardio phase back in the day, cardio, cardio, right? John Cooper, and I think it was, his first name was John, right? Or Ken, Kenneth Cooper, maybe. I think it was Ken Cooper. You know, Dr. Cooper out of Texas, the big thing was just go run, run for your oh, heart yeah. health, which there's some truth to that too. But, you know, as the general thing for everybody in all cases and in and, and anaerobic sports, no, it's, it's, it's not a, a desirable thing. So <laughs> just depends. It depends. Awesome. Hey, You've made us think today, so I appreciate that. And uh, thanks a lot for sharing, opening our eyes to a whole new kind of area of, of coaching, if you will. And we need to be thinking more about that. So thank you very much for all the words of wisdom and uh, people can find you online. So thanks, thanks so much. Thanks. Yeah. Follow us, holler, holler and send a message or uh, comment on something and, and I'll engage and respond. I love hearing from people and, and having a dialogue about it. It's fun. So thank you too, Dirk. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. Visit trainingpeaks.com for more training and coaching resources.